0: Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast.
1: Morning, Doug, and uh, thank you so much for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles this morning. And um, I know last year you were on the podcast speaking to uh, a lot of these same issues, but for our listeners that you know are new, may not know who you are, if you could just give a brief
2: background, history of yourself and your group. Well, yes, yeah, sure, Wendy, that would be wonderful. And uh, thanks for having me back on the podcast. I think it's important what you're doing and getting messages and information out to people. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a retired senior. Uh, I spent my working life supporting people who have disabling conditions to live successfully in the community. I've been doing this for over 40 years. and um, I'm retired like a lot of people, but uh, you can't really leave a social movement. You're, you're always involved in, in some way. You don't really retire from, from this. And so uh, I'm uh, currently I'm, I'm volunteering with uh, Seniors for Social Action Ontario, which is a group that formed uh, last March as the pandemic began to roll through long-term care homes and the tragedy began to emerge. And a number of... Uh, just seniors around the province who knew each other began to contact uh, each other and uh, say, we, we, we really need to do something uh, about this, have a, have a voice in, in, the, in changing this darn system that we've known has been so broken for so long. And so we came together uh, last March and April, and we have been hard at it ever since, trying to affect change in the political system, in the bureaucratic system, in the public mind, about what are the real issues behind these problems we're always seeing in long-term care that's led to a unspeakable number of deaths and infections.
1: Yes, thank you so much for that, Doug. And, you know, what you're saying is is totally true. Because I know last year you had testified at the Long-Term Care Commission. And of course the report has now been released as of April of this year with with their 90 plus recommendations. And as grateful as those um, recommendations are, but how useful are they going to be if they're not going to be implemented? And how do we go about that process of ensuring that those recommendations get implemented?
2: So, I'm, uh, Wendy, the report was released. Uh, they, they asked for additional time, right? They wanted another six or seven months to really get at it. We were supportive of that additional time because it's been decades and decades of yes. dysfunction so so uh, but anyway the ford government did not give them the time and i think the report reflects that a little bit to me it's a it's a rushed job if you read it it feels rushed to me but the essential uh, issue the report was released that uh, the, the last day of april and um, uh, preceding it by about 3 or 4 days was the also the auditor general's report on uh, the preparedness and management of the pandemic but I'll speak, I'll speak to just both reports for a minute. I mean, both reports were absolutely scathing of the government's response to older people, both um, at the pandemic level, but also for decades and decades of, of issues being, not being resolved. Um, and, and, and so, you know, they talk about the long-term care operations not being prepared, not being well managed, um, and there's just a, a, a myriad of examples that both reports give in, in relation to this, which which led to the, the the high rate of deaths and infections. I mean, actually, in the first part of the year uh, 2020, or, or as this pandemic unfolded, we had the most deaths in the world in long. This is nothing to be proud of, let me tell you. So, our 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 take on the 85 recommendations from the Commission, there are 16 recommendations in the Auditor General's report. Our our issue with the Commission's report is that while it had the ability to look at root causes and make comment on how this elder care system could be amended, it chose not to do that. So much to our disappointment, it chose a very narrow focus mainly on the pandemic itself. You know, the unpreparedness, the uh, the PPE problems, the staffing problems, the, all the things that have been previously documented decade after decade after decade that no one's done anything about. So for, for us, it, it was really problematic. I mean, um, you, you know, really wasn't a deep understanding that the model of institutional, the medical model of institutional congregate care is flawed at its core. (laughs) And and that, and that I think it's important for your listeners to, to to just pause for a minute and and reflect that the institutional model of care has been used by every social group in the past, whether it be children in orphanages or people with intellectual disabilities and regional centers or those with mental health problems in asylums or indigenous youth in residential schools, my goodness, all all social groups have given up on the institutional model because it simply has characteristics and a culture that does not lend itself to the personal care and attention that we all want for ourselves and our loved ones. Now, today, the institutional model of care is simply used by prisoners and the elderly. And the the elder care system is clinging to it as as hard as they possibly can because there's vested interests. As you know, there's 58% of the industries controlled by the for-profit sector. We have a government that wants to keep it in place, the institutional sector. And by the way, and I say this quite respectfully, but in respectful disagreement, so do the unions wanna keep it in place. That unions are not as comfortable in a community-based service system as they are in an institutional model of care. And that's been very problematic. So, so the, the commission really spent most of its recommendations, virtually all of the recommendations on trying to fix the current problem that you can see it because of the pandemic and then has one line or one paragraph in its whole report 100 pages or so one line about well we need to reimagine elder care well well my goodness of course we need to reimagine elder care why did you say something and they they in their in their in their preamble and in their prose they do talk about the need to reimagine this but they don't connect any of that thinking up with actual recommendations they have one out of 85 recommendations that says more support for aging in place and some alternatives. But when you read the report in its totality, you really see that that's that's almost incidental, like a throwaway to the advocates who came to the table and testified on the need for that. Let's give them something, but did not seriously balance it with their recommendations. And they go as high as 55,000 new beds in their report. I mean, Ford has promised 30,000, they've allocated 20,000 of the 30,000. And now we have a commission saying up to 55,000 you need to build. And of course, Seniors for Social Action Ontario has always been saying, Denmark hasn't built a nursing home bed in 30 years. Why? It's because they have the most robust home care system in the world, one of the most robust home care systems. So they don't limit it like Ontario does to one or two hours a day. They talk about, they plan with people. What do you need? How can we keep you there Uh, aging in place? Or if not, if that's not possible, in a small home that's close to where you live. So I think the commission, um, perhaps well-intentioned, but maybe we could have predicted this at the beginning because uh, the people on the commission, well-meaning and skilled in their own rights, were not reformers. Uh, they, they, they were people that were more linked with the, with the public service, with the status quo, with hospitals. Uh, this was not a reforming body. This was, uh, and and so our disappointment is that this was a huge opportunity in Ontario that's been missed. And um, I, I mean, I'll give you one small example that sticks in my craw a little bit about this. And I think it's just a a harbinger of of how the report was gonna come out. And that's about enforcement. Everybody knows that there's constant problems with enforcing the current regulations and the residents' Bill of Rights, right? Everybody knows that. And and so one of the reasons is, um, and maybe your listeners don't know this, but the inspection branch um, cannot provide financial penalties to continually uh, 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 um, unenforced regulations by these repeat offenders, these operators who simply do not do what they're supposed to do. The Liberals brought in uh, this legislation just before they were defeated. It It was passed in the House, but it was not proclaimed. And so inspectors don't even have the ability to fine an operator a hundred bucks because of what they're doing, which, which you know, which would hit the private sector in the pocketbook if you had a $10,000 fine per day for not having pandemic preparedness plan in place. but they can't even do that. And the Ford government has decided not to proclaim this ability to find to provide financial penalties. Now you have to think about that, don't you why is the Ford government not interested in real serious deterrence and enforcement? Um, So um, to give some credit to the Auditor General's report, there's 16 recommendations. One of the recommendations was to bring in the financial penalties that were that were passed in the legislation of 2000 and just before the PCs uh, came into power. So I mean, that, that, that's a little example uh, of, of how they just do not get at the, the core issues in the report. So that's been overwhelmingly frustrating for us, uh, I, I think, and it, it, it won't produce any of the change that we were looking for.
0: Yeah, that uh, was one of the, I guess, one of the disappointments of the report and uh, some of the recommendations. And with and what you said in regards with the auditor general's um, report as well. Did you want to further comment any more as to the other than what you've mentioned?
2: I think uh, there there actually isn't a lot to comment on with the auditor general's report because they sit The Auditor General's report was more narrowly focused than even the Long-Term Care Commission's report. I mean, they just went to, were you prepared to meet this pandemic or not? And how were you managed? Um, I mean, and and I think anybody who wanted to read the, the introductory, the executive summary, if you will, of the Auditor General's report, it is worth doing because you get a sense from them on the size and the scope of the mismanagement. Um, I can't imagine that these law firms that are representing families in class action lawsuits won't be jumping all over these reports. Um, I, I mean, another small example they brought forward, I mean, it wasn't just the staffing issues and not having the PPEs and all that, not having even a pandemic in place and not having the management capable of guiding this, but even the system itself. In March of 2020, March and April of 2020, when the, when the deaths were beginning to occur and the pandemic was wrapping, was ramping up, the Ministry of Long-Term Policy was uh, to transfer more people, 50% more people into long-term care from hospitals than they had previously done before, on average. They, instead of, let's say 500 uh, people a month being transferred from hospitals to long-term care, during the pandemic, they were transferring 750 people into long term care facilities during the pandemic, increasing the problem by stacking more people up in a congregate care facility model that could not handle the current people that they had. And then, if you, if you really want to, you know, the other issue of a, a, a directive given to um, the uh, long term care facilities not to transfer people who were ill to hospital is just unconscionable and and as we know now this came out later as you know wendy you know many people who had covid they weren't dying of covid they were dying of dehydration and malnutrition so this this comes out in the auditor general talks about this and so i think boy if i was a lawyer in a class action lawsuit (laughs) it's these reports will aid and abet their cause
0: definitely they will and In regards to now currently with long-term care residents that are vaccinated and we're still seeing the issue of they weren't able to go outside and only recently only a couple of weeks ago they've been recently been able to hug and what does this you know further you know imply or kind of perpetrate as to the fact that we have residents that are vaccinated but still they're not able to Even enjoy the life that the life that they can have in long term care currently, how do we further get that to change because that took a lot of you know people advocating for. Just for them to go outside and to be able to hug and you know what are caregivers and advocates, you know willing to or should be able to do moving
2: forward. Yeah, you're, you're really touching on two important things, uh, Wendy, uh, w- w- when you talk about this. So let me talk about the yeah. overarching issue first. Perfect. Um, when you have an institutional model of care, it operates on the principles of uh, control, standardization, regimentation. Institutional culture will not be person-centered. You, it, it will, it will not be able to address so uh, an individual situation or these six people should have their family with them tomorrow. It, it everybody gets painted. All seventy-eight people in long-term care will be painted with the same brush. Yes. No one, so that it'll be no one can see anybody, right? That that's what happens when you have an institutional culture institutional model of congregate care, you will go to the lowest common denominator in terms of the rules and regulations. It'll be regimented, it'll be controlled, it'll be standardized. And so when someone says, well, I've been vaccinated, my mother's been vaccinated, why can't I visit her? They'll say, well, there's some who haven't. And everybody's controlled that way. So that's that's absolutely important to understand. This comes from the institutional culture the second thing is that of course we should have had the ability even in the institutional model to say if we have staff coming in every day who have and and what are staff doing at night or on the weekends or whenever why can't we train up essential caregivers family members the same way we train up staff and say this is a unique situation of course you can come in you're an essential caregiver to your mother or father or your loved one, and you should be able to come in under the same rules and regulations that we hold our staff accountable for, with the same kinds of monitoring, and you can p- provide that kind of care that we need. Now, that would be, a, that would be um, a way to try and test the boundaries of the institutional model of care, which is saying, stay away, we can't deal with individual situations, yes. you know and liability and all the rest of the things that come into play. Um, Now, this also occurred, Wendy, in uh, small homes and other models of care, because there is an overarching trepidation and nervousness about this and everybody responds that way. Uh, Where there was more flexibility uh, was in home care, you know, for example, because uh, home care is not controlled by the home care agency in the sense, right? You're going into somebody's home who may have a loved one living there or coming in. So there was different different standards. But I, I also know from the testimony to the commission by a united front of home care providers like, you know, uh, uh, VON and, 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 and others, even Bayshore, went in and said the, the infection rate of staff was so low in the home care model <laughs> compared to the institutional model of care that they were telling us that this could be managed, right? If, if people were homeless, this could be indeed managed. So I mean, those are those are two things. Yes, we, we could have done different things by treating essential family caregivers differently by saying you're as important to us as our staff are, you need to be coming in. But here are the rules and regulations, here's how we do it. But Wendy, we will always experience this in, in, in more institutional models of care. People won't be allowed in because we can't feel individual preference and difference. Even though we use words like patient-centered or person-centered, all that, that's really a myth. Uh, let's just say that right now. That, that's a myth in the institutional model of care when everybody eats the same food at the same time. <laughs> We're not talking yeah. about individual <laughs> preference and personality here. Let's be honest.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And, well, thank you so much for that. And now, currently, there's the talk of national standards with long-term care, and this should be part of the Health Canada Act. And right now, there's a working committee being put in place to look at that. And there's been 50 years uh, of reports and information and research that has already gone into, into this. Do we not have enough reports that we can't that the federal government can't just implement something or to be able to have enough information and what else is there really that's going to be looked at
2: here yeah so that's a very good question wendy and i i think we're talking a bit more uh a bit more in a bit more sophisticated manner when we start raising the issue of national standards first of all um Seniors for Social Action Ontario has been clear from the very beginning that while you can always add regulation and you can always add standards to give more clarity or maybe add something, and I'll I'll mention a few ideas, but the issue for us has never been so much about regulation and standard as it has been about enforcement and deterrence. Put all the standards in place that you want, put all the regulations, rewrite the Bill of uh, the Residence Bill of Rights if you want to do that, add a few more clauses. But if you don't enforce things, what the heck matters? And, and what we're having right now is a crisis with enforcement. We do not have a crisis with regulation, available regulation. We have decent regulation, we have decent Residence Bill of Rights. This is about the lack of interest with enforcement from any previous government. So that being said, I mean, um, the standard is not the issue for us, but, but given that, uh, given I've said that, uh, so we're worried about a couple things. One is it's very sexy, if I can say, for everybody to say, well, we must have failed in our standards, and get everybody together, and let's think about redoing this kind of stuff. And what they won't think about is how to enforce it. How to enforce it? But when when, when we talk to people, and we do talk to those folks that are involved in the standards debate, and and they say, well, well, it'll you know of course it has to be enforced, and that's where they leave that's where they leave the whole issue, the fun the fundamental central <laughs> issue is enforcement. And they yes. say, well, of course it has to be enforced. And then they get back to writing their standards. Exactly. So where it could be helpful, Wendy, is is if 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 uh, Canada, if the federal government was to say that uh, the Canada Health Act, it, it, um, to the Canada Health Act is the need to have seniors age in place, to age at home, or to have choice um, to be somewhat in control or their friends and allies to be helping people to make decisions about their life. If the Canada Health Act was to have some overarching statements that would go to uh, the need for community-based care, not institutional care, if it was go to aging in place, if it was to port choice and control then when we're talking about the transfer of dollars from the federal government to the provincial government in terms of the Canada health act and what we, what we, what we um, subsidize federally in our transfer payments and in our, in our program funding streams uh, then some standards around the allocation that must go to Home care, for example, has to go to home care. It can't be diverted anywhere else, right? So uh, yeah. we know uh, right now, for example, that our, our 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 Canadian system, let alone Ontario, our Canadian system, is oriented to spend most of the money on the institutional model of care, which most seniors are saying they don't want, right? It's the nice. recent the recent um, a survey that came out that was quoted by the National Institute on Aging at Ryerson University quoted a Ipsos Reid poll that said, 96% of seniors will do anything they can to stay out of a long-term care home. (laughs) Yet we have have, um, $6 spent on the institutional model for every $1 spent on home care. Uh, That's from a report by uh, um, uh, Don Drummond, the uh, former uh, mm-hmm. Economist, Queen's University uh, report, Aging Well, that came out with the Duncan Sinclair from Queen's, had a you know scathing review of this uh, imbalance between the institutional model and the funding that goes to home care. So if we're talking national standards, let's talk about how they affect the use of federal monies in a transfer payment system that could be used to safeguard Uh, What the monies are used for and build up our system of uh, aging in place and home care and family paid caregiver program and maybe even uh, boy, this would be innovative, maybe something that would speak to the transfer of monies from the long term care system to the community based system. Um, And we could get into that too a little bit uh, later Wendy if you want I mean in the United States. Right There's a Supreme Court decision 20 years ago that said if somebody wanted to come out of a long-term care facility, a nursing home, and have another option in community, that the money spent on that person in the facility could go with them to a new place in a community-based model of support. That's called the Olmstead decision. Supreme Court of the U.S., not a lower court decision. Uh, started with uh, two people with disabilities living in nursing homes in Georgia, worked its way up to the Supreme Court, <clears throat> and they confirmed that. So, so <clears throat> maybe national standards could also speak to the fluidity, the portability, the flexibility of the funding model that would allow people choice and control instead of being funneled into and kept into the institutional model of care. So. In that limited way, I think standards could be helpful, but in the absence of really understanding the dilemma with, um, uh, you know, what, what we call the Med model. I mean, monitoring, right? Monitoring the situation, enforcement of the current regulations and rules, and deterrence. M E D. In the absence of that, which is the real issue, I think national standards, if they don't get at those issues I just mentioned, will make everybody happy, lots of work. It's, as I said, kind of the sexy thing to do, and uh, um, but it hasn't proven to fix anything the last 30 years that I've seen. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, definitely. And it's just the ability to pivot and to change and to think differently outside of the box, like what you've mentioned, it would be fantastic in terms, especially with the funding piece of following the person. You know, it's not that it hasn't been done in some aspects of society here, especially in the in this particular province or in other provinces, but I think for long-term care, maybe that needs to be looked at as well. And um, going into right now, Again, the current talk is people don't wanna move into these long-term care settings, these big 200, 300, 400, five um, bed yeah. settings. They wanna look at alternative uh, levels of care. And your current call to action, your petition is speaking to that uh, in terms of that growing conversation. Can you, um, you know, add a little bit more to, to what to exactly for your petition?
2: yeah thanks Wendy. yeah we, uh, we put out a petition for a couple of reasons and, and the petition is um, trying to engage the grassroots people of Ontario in this kind of uh, in, in this way through, through action through a petition to help people understand that the grassroots has to mobilize in order to make change. If this does not happen, if we just maintain the same political masters that we've had right now, we will not be able to make the change. And so the petition speaks to um, <clears throat> uh, long-term care and the institutionalization of people as a human right, uh, not to be institutionalized. I mean, <laughs> you should have the choice. You, you should not be forced a- into a, a congregate care institutional facility that's based on regimentation, standardization, uh, warehousing of people, um, uh, um, And because if society is gonna spend money that way, then you should have some choice in how society spends its money. It shouldn't just force you into one option or not. And so um, we wanna say that there should be portability of funding, flexibility in funding so that it can follow the person out. And basically, if you look at the petition and you look at sort of the um, um, convention on the rights of persons with disabilities uh, in, in, the UN Convention that's just, you know, you know the protocols have been uh, recently ratified by uh, Canada, that um, people uh, w- with disabilities, and, 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 and what I'm speaking of, if, if you're a senior in long-term care home, likely you have a disability. So we're talking about most of the seniors in long-term care. The Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities said people should have a choice where and with whom they live. Exactly. now isn't that something now we we kind of shake our heads and say oh my god is that possible we say well of course it is if money is attached to the person <laughs> instead of to the bed
1: yes.
2: which don't we to talk about beds so much in this province we talk about beds 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 funding beds and who's got the beds and are the beds approved and what are the beds cost and the construction costs of the beds the operating costs of the beds basically we should be talking about people exactly. Mother needs some help how much help does your mother need and can she provide it at home or does it have to be somewhere else? You know, and and, and could it be if she shared with two or three other people, in a in a, a, a senior's assisted living arrangement, could, yeah. could that be done with, with two or three other people? So what we're trying to say with, with the petition is to open people's eyes to the possibility that things could be different. You could have a flexible portable funding system. People could have more, control and choice of where their money goes. The, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities say that people should have that right to choose where and with who they live. So th- this, is a, this, is, this is a powerful concept, but I can't say enough about how the mindset of our citizenry has been conditioned to think that long-term care institutions are a normative and expected feature on the landscape of and you and i know it's just not true (laughs) right now what we're seeing what we're seeing now is seniors themselves have opened their eyes with all this death and infection and are saying i don't want this for me i want this for my loved one they're also saying they're they don't want their children caring for them in these places they want something else and so uh And by the way, to be political for a a, a minute, parents of baby boomers are in long-term care. The baby boomers yet are not really in long-term care, but they're coming, they're at the doorstep. And I know, because I've talked to the children of baby boomers, and they're worried about their parents right now, because the children of baby boomers are now like 40-ish, right? 45. And they're looking at their parents on the doorstep of long-term care, and they've just seen a horror show Exactly. So what Right now, we have two or three generations that are lined up to vote for change. Yes. And we mobilize that constituency into a political master who will do the right thing. We may have the ability to make some change. And so the petition is part of that process that we're using to try and have the citizenry think differently about yes. elder care. Just because a nursing home has been there for 50 years doesn't mean it's where we want to be. We've closed residential schools, closed asylum, closed regional centers, closed orphanages. (laughs) It doesn't have to be this way, Ontario citizens. It could be different, but not unless we mobilize ourselves. It is our province. It is our money. It is our future. And we need to do something about this. And so I think the the petition was a way to uh, get at that, and um, and to get at and you'll see updates on the petition because we're trying to come at it from different angles. Yes, we're up to about a thousand people now or something. Um, but the other thing, you know, Wendy, not not everybody's aware so much that there are these wide range of options yeah. that are in Ontario. I mean, they're they're not widely known because community support agencies are just so badly funded, so horribly funded, they have to go to bingo to raise money so that they can can give people the needed service and support as if it was superfluous, as if it was uh, some little extra that's hardly necessary. And yet I've talked to some of these community support agencies who have implemented, for example, a Seniors Assisted Living Program which they try and jam in between the little bit of home care somebody gets and their placement. But what if your mom or dad or yourself, what what if you need six hours a day or eight hours a day
0: exactly. of, of help,
2: right? So I, I've talked to these people who have run these and, they, and, 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 and they've run them on a shoestring, these seniors assisted living programs. I know one in Peel region that started with a grant uh, that that was a one-year grant, but they saw the need; they had to do it, and so they began to provide assisted living to seniors uh, in, in supportive housing units, so they could stay there, age in their own place. And then the one-year grant finishes, and now they're having to, to raise money and 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 you know, go here and go there to find money. Meanwhile, where every nursing home bed costs two hundred and thirty-two thousand to construct it, that they'll pay. Operator, and then another 200 bucks a day plus for the operating costs. And these people running seniors assisted living, keeping people out of the expensive model, which Don Drummond and Duncan yes. Sinclair clearly say we cannot afford with the baby boomers coming, clearly say that in response to the commission's report that says build 50,000 new beds, for God's sakes. I mean, so, so, um, there are people out there who have been helping seniors live in their homes and we don't know it. It's like a big secret, if you will. And what we need to do and what the petition is pointing to is that the alternatives are already out there. They're just poorly, poorly funded, poorly addressed because, because we have a system that funnels people into institutional beds if you underfund assisted seniors living if you underfund home care if you make those people scrape and scratch for anything they can get then you will have a system that puts people into long term care beds and that's why in ontario and in canada generally speaking we have the highest rates of institutionalization right in in the developed countries and the lowest rates of spending on home care and that that's that's absolutely a huge problem but I think what SSAO understands from the very beginning is that if we don't mobilize a new political agenda that can drive the change, we will have bureaucrats uh, like the deputy ministers in health and in long-term care, who run the bureaucracies, they will be um, subservient to the legislative agenda that's given to them by the political leaders, now it's Doug Ford, who's very clearly uh, controlling this in the, in the Premier's office and uh, very clearly uh, you know, increasing the resources, which we feared, to the institutional model of care. Um, and just let me say a thing about this, uh, Wendy, uh, about two weeks ago, the uh, Financial Accountability Office, FAO, you know. Uh, financial accountability office in Ontario uh, costed out Ford's um, promises of 30,000 new beds uh, about uh, the uh, 15,000 redeveloped beds that have been um, on the table. <clears throat> plus the other um, promises about uh, four hours of contact time um, and the uh, what the financial accountability office says when they you know, um, make their way through all of the political message and noise about this is they said, the long-term care budget will go from 4.4 billion to 10.6 billion. And they say 5 billion of that will be annualized in the next eight years. So we're doubling the money going into long-term care over the next eight years have you seen any announcement on home care, on aging in place, on portable, flexible funding for families to stay there, on seniors assisted living programs, on family paid caregiver programs that would help people age at home? We have seen zero, absolutely zero. So what we're, what we're hearing right now, Wendy, is that of the 30,000 beds that he's, Ford has promised, 20,000 have been allocated. There are 30,000 beds up for redevelopment when the license expires. License expires over the next three or four years from various operators. Of those 30,000 redeveloped beds, 15,000 of those have been approved for redevelopment. So we are investing in spades in the long-term care industry, as you and I speak. and, And over the next, until the next provincial election, which is in about what, 11 months from now, or maybe 12 months from now. Our fear is that the bureaucracy will be forced to sign 25 year contracts with all of these operators. And the question I have is, so where does the money come for what people are asking? Seniors, 96% of them, they want to age at home. They want to have control over their dollars. Where is the money going to come from? And this is because it's it's being directed by the Ford government to build up the institutional system which people are saying they don't want. So we have chosen, the petition's an example, but also what we've done is we've been continually meeting with the uh, Stephen Del Duca from the Liberals and with the political leadership of the NDP party to see their appetite and their interest in reforming elder care not improving a system that can... I'll I'll say a little bit about that cuz I think it's worth uh yes. talking about the political uh, work that we have been doing perfect um politically uh the NDP last September came out with what we thought was an extremely progressive uh agenda of elder care reform they talked about moving from the institutional models of small homes being developed around the province, operated by nonprofit network of people, really positive stuff. They talked about building up uh, home care, uh, um, $250 million per year for the next four years. I mean, that would be a billion into that system. They actually talked about enforcement. They talked about a lot of things that, that needed to be done. Um, as we've spoken to them more recently, uh, there seems to be some tentative nature now, um, and, and part of that is because uh, their base of support, um, uh, unions, have always struggled with the community-based model of flexible, affordable care, home care. And so, you know, the NDP, its base uh, tends to drive it. And so they are listening to those who think that the um, institution can be fixed, propped up, you know, just throw in a bit more money, throw in some more staffing, uh, throw in a few more uh, standards, uh, throw in the butterfly model, so people can hopefully be respected a little bit more and maybe we can make this work. Well, um, so we're very cautious. We continue to speak with the NDP about why that is. There's some tremendous reports out that say this is a long way to go. And uh, so we've also been talking to the Liberal Party because, you know, the Liberal Party was decimated. Yes. election didn't even make party status. But I'll, I'll have to say, and SSAO, I'll say to everybody, we are, you know, politically agnostic. You know, we're not promoting any political party, uh, although we're very critical of what Ford is doing, obviously, because he's investing in the long-term care industry for. Various reasons; they're very committed to that. Um, but I, I found that the liberals had a, a, a an interest in in what they called a more nuanced conversation about this. And rather than having a debate about who promises the most beds wins the election, yeah. they were interested in another kind of conversation about what are seniors saying. So I have to say, Wendy, is it refreshing to listen to somebody who says, well, what are seniors saying? Because SSAO is made up of, we're seniors. We're all retired we don't, we're, we're worried about our own future. Our parents, of course, although my parents have passed on, but we're worried about our loved ones. We're worried about ourselves. And he wants to listen to the seniors. I'm going, oh my God, finally a politician that wants to listen to what seniors are saying. So, when 96% of seniors saying the one age in place, yes. I think what the liberals are saying is that let's 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 pay attention to this. So, they have just gone through a process of where they're developing their election platform. Their number one or number two issue is long-term care, uh, that's that's kind of rooted in their policy, and they are beginning to take on board some of the more progressive ideas about how they could change the system because they know, I mean, they were in power long enough. Yes, They have to wear some of this too. I mean, let's face it, you know, they were in power for a long time and there's a lot of changes that that, that could have been done, but I think they recognize that. And they're beginning to say, we can't afford the institutional system. He sees that we we need to do aging in place and we need to incentivize uh, caregivers like a family paid caregiver program or like money follows the person or all these kinds of ideas there, they seem to be very open to these ideas in their process and their process of developing the election platform has been extremely participatory and they've developed their, 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 their major planks in their platform. And the one on long-term care, which had a specific, uh, and every evening over May and June they were having evenings to talk about each of their different elements of their plank. in the long-term care evening, it had the most people on I think there was like 4 or 500 people that were on the evening uh, on the evening Zoom, giving feedback yeah. about long-term care. Boy, if that doesn't say something about your about your priorities, but so far we're getting a fairly uh, a good feeling of what they're saying right now. Now we're a long way off. Yes. As I said before, Wendy, the problem is if the government that's in place right now signs 25-year contracts for another $5 billion worth of uh, of, uh, long-term care beds, uh, we're going to be in trouble, this province is, for the uh, model of aging in place, which most people want.
0: Yes, definitely. And you're right. Uh, from the uh, report from Duncan Sinclair, uh, we definitely can't afford it in terms of what, uh, you know, if we continue on that uh, basis. Now, I wanted to speak as well to your other uh, initiative, which is your, you wrote a, your group wrote a letter to the Ontario Human Rights Commission and this was on the institutionalization of older adults and basically just going to the systemic and to the discriminatory conditions within long-term care. And I just wanted to know if you could just be able to speak to that in terms of the importance of why you wrote that letter and why this needs to be talked about.
2: Yes, so Wendy, SSAO began to think that uh, change might have to be driven (laughs) by In the same way that in the U.S. the Supreme Court stepped in and made a decision that began to drive some of the change they can see there, we could see that there's the possibility with the Long-Term Care Commission not really taking it up. And frankly, uh, I'll be a little critical here, some of the seniors' advocacy organizations not really taking up the change that needs to take place. Um, that beginning to fall into bed with those who think you can fix the existing model with more money and more beds and more contact time. And of course, we need more contact time. Of course, we need those things. That's not going to fix the model that people are complaining about. We felt that it was important that seniors needed protection. And if we have a a human rights commission, if what's just happened to 4,000 people in long-term care is not a, a human rights... How people have been treated and funneled and corralled into COVID care facilities and kept there unattended by their loved ones and others if this isn't a human rights issue and if seniors organizations are not taking it up if the long-term care commission is not taking it up if the auditor general is not taking it up if no one who the question to ask is who's protecting our seniors i mean okay we have class action lawsuits but frankly, I've seen these class action lawsuits in the developmental service system for people with intellectual disabilities who had one. And in the end of the day, it may not fix what needs to be fixed. Maybe there'll be compensation and that kind of thing be paid. There'll be more headlines. It may not fix anything. So we thought that we needed to approach the human rights commission and say, "My goodness, there, there is there is aversive a uh, treatment going on here <laughs> that yes. some take a look at." And so we we made this overture. Uh, Frankly, we we made it both to the Canadian and to the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Both of them uh, deferred. The uh, Ontario Human Rights Commission deferred to the Long-Term Care Commission. When the report came out from the Long-Term Care Commission, uh, and, and by the way, when they deferred, the Ontario Human Rights Commission deferred to the Long-Term Care Commission, they copied their letter to the bureaucracy and to the Long-Term Care Commission. This was a letter that we wrote to them. So uh, the Long-Term Care Commission, uh, a couple of weeks after they released their report, wrote back to the commission to say that essentially uh, this was not their issue that this is the issue of the operators and the government. And so what you saw was a ball being tossed back and forth between affected parties who did not wanna to touch this issue. It gives you an incredible sense of how no one wants to protect frail elderly seniors who have found their way into this institutional system of care that is at, is at the root of this problem that we're seeing. So um, I think you know, Wendy, we are looking at all avenues of uh, of, of rights abuse and how this can be carried forward uh, into our system in some way. And it may mean that you know the courts have to come into play, not simply in the class action lawsuits, which will be about compensation, but in the in in the rights of people with disabilities. I think we need to pay real attention to this. So. So yes, uh, I I think uh, this is something that needs to be addressed and and we've uh, begun to walk down this road.
0: No, that's great. And it really does need to be talked about. I mean, everything that you've mentioned um, really needs to be continued conversation for at least not only just for the next year because of an election, but continually until change actually happens. So I wanted to give you lastly, if there was anything else that you wanted to touch upon um, before we end this episode.
2: Thanks, Wendy. Uh, I I think there is one last thing I wanted to say, and, and I believe I said it the last time I was on your podcast in closing, to the people that are listening today, this is, if you do not act, if you wait for others, and this is why SSAO got together. And now we're seeing, even recently, as I suggested, the Long-Term Care Commission and the Human Rights Commission of Ontario throwing balls back and forth because no one wants to touch this. This is our life. This is our issue. If you've never written a letter before, now's the time. A letter to the editor of a newspaper about what you want to see in relation to an article you've just read. A letter to your MPP about why you want to age in place. And and the money that's being allocated now is going to institutions not where it should be. It's a simple letter. So we need to become politically savvy. We need to step up. We need to start writing things. There was no one who will do this for you. CSAO was a, a group of people across the province that have come together. Um, but uh, we're just you. All we are is you who's listening today. We're just citizens that couldn't stand it anymore. So if if you leave it, you will have more institutional care in our lives. And no aging in place. Uh, and, and, and so last thing I want to say is we need to write to those who matter political leaders newspapers opinion formers decision makers you can join uh, you can join up with ssao seniorsactionontario.com www.seniorsactionontario.com and just click register join us and write letters
0: Thank you so much, Douglas. And I'll make sure to put those in the show notes so people can be able to access and click onto those links. But again, I really wanted to thank you for your time, for coming on and to speak to these particular issues. And hopefully you'll come back, you know, in a couple of months to see where progress has been. But again, Douglas, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time.
2: Thanks for the opportunity, Wendy. I think it's really important what the Family Council Collaborative is doing and getting the message out. Thank you.